Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with a very special hero and friend, Jacob Schick. Jacob is the executive officer for 22 Kill, which is a nonprofit that raises awareness and combats suicide by empowering veterans, first responders, and their families through traditional and non-traditional therapies. Jacob is also a third-generation Marine who epitomizes service and sacrifice. His story is incredible. And I hope you feel inspired from hearing his journey. I'm Jacob Schick, CEO of 22Kill, fighting for the fact that it's okay to not be okay. Sorry, not sorry. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I say your name. You solemnly swear. Defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without purpose of evasion or mental reservation, that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States. And the orders of, of those, officers those officers appointed over me, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of which I am about to enter, according to regulations, a uniform code of military justice. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. In one of our cases, we had a young woman whose husband, a West Point graduate, an Army Apache helicopter pilot, just back from Iraq, having flown 70 combat missions, sought help six times in the week before he killed himself. I haven't been myself recently. I suffer, you know, with PTSD. Just won't go away for a long time. I hope that you think twice about what you are doing to this nation's veterans who are willing to die to protect this nation. If you asked my kids or your kids what does courage mean, they would say it means to not be afraid. And I feel like the older you get, the more you realize that courage is really about what you do in spite of being afraid. It's how you channel said fear. So tell me what you think courage means. Being afraid and doing it anyway. And how has that changed from uh, before your combat experience to now? Um, I'm much more eloquent. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I say it in a better way. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, much less. Yeah, much less colorful language, uh, dependent upon the audience. I'm speaking of Marines. It's. Pretty easy to let the inner marine come out. Uh, but 
You know, for me, it's like when I start a speaking engagement, I'll ask, whether I'm speaking to 50 people or 5,000 people, I'll say, how many people in here have ever suffered from depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, suicidal ideation, et cetera? Just show of hands. And usually 5 or 10% of the room will raise a hand. And if I'm commissioned for an hour, I'll speak for an hour and do 15, 20 Q&A. And the last thing I'll do before I leave is say, after, you know, thank you, honor, privilege, Peter, et cetera, et cetera. How many people in the room have ever experienced depression, hypervigilance, suicidal ideation, et cetera, et cetera? Everybody. Whole room, and I'll go, look around you. That's what courage looks like. Mm. So take me back to, um, I was reading articles about you, and it said that you knew you were going to be a Marine at what age? About eight. See, I can totally relate to that because I knew I was going to be an actress at like seven. Really? Yeah. I just, I saw a play and I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. So what at eight did you see that made you realize that's what I want to do? I was really close to my grandmother growing up, like super close. Mm. And like, instead of going to the hunting camp or whatever, I grew up in Louisiana, you know, um, or to a sporting event with my dad and my brother and my uncles. Yeah, you could do that or go stay with Mimi. Go stay the weekend with Mimi. And I was like, I'm totally going to stay with Mimi. <laughs> because she was, I was the baby of the family. And um, she was she was a hard woman. I mean, she just, you know, went through the Great Depression, World War II, and just mm. was a very set in her ways, hard woman. But I could do no wrong. Like, I was this. You were the prince? I was. And, I, and obviously, you know, I ate that up. But I respected her and loved her so much because I could see how strong she was mm. internally and externally and mentally. And and then I would hear her talk about my grandfather, who's the first, you know, the first generation Marine in the Schick family and fought on Iwo Jima in World War II. And her chest would swell with pride and, like, her eyes would light up. Mm. Every time she spoke at him, you know, he, he passed when he was 54 uh, over brain aneurysm. So I never met him. But And she would always tell me, you know, Jake, I've never so much as danced with another man since your papa died. And never did. She never yeah, did. that was that generation. So did you enlist right out of high school? Beginning my senior year. And you yeah. did you know it was – this is always curious for me. Like yeah. how, do you, how do you know it's going to be like the Marines and not the Army or – or <laughs> I knew because my uh, his middle son, my grandfather's middle son's my second uncle. It was also Marine Vietnam, and so it's still very much alive. Had I done anything else in any other branch, I would hear about it every single day until he dies or I die. And I just I was like, mm, nah. And I don't know the way that my grandmother talked about the Marines and. Showing me, she taught me about World War II and so special the Holocaust and the, at a very young age. Like I remember seeing her, her neighbor, who's his, I'm not sure his name wasn't Red, but he was nicknamed Red in the neighborhood, and he was a combat photographer in World War II. Mm. And being a little boy, I mean, five six years old, going over to Red's house with my Mimi and looking at the pictures and the concentration camps and. It instilled something in me, I think, at a very early age that, you know, I just, I want to do something to rid the world of evil and make it a better place. And I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what it was, especially that young. I do truly believe that work ethic and dedication will surpass talent. 
10 times out of 10. At some point, it will surpass talent. I agree with that. Natural, God-given, however you want to put it, talent, it will be surpassed. And I think that's what drove me was my conviction in wanting to be the best at whatever it was I was doing, knowing there's always someone out there who's going to be bigger, stronger, faster, but only I can push myself to failure in and training. work harder. Right. Only I can do that. What was boot camp like? Yeah, um, there's a lot of things I would do over again in life. Just that's not one of them. Boot camp's not one. It was uh, for me. You know, I, gra- I I graduated high school in Capel, Texas, and then at the beginning though of my senior year, I signed up. Beginning I was already, of your senior year, I was okay. already 18. Okay. So I signed up and I didn't tell anybody. I could, because I thought that was a good idea. Wasn't a good idea. Because my dad found out at my high school graduation and he was not happy at all. Uh, he didn't talk to me for several months. So he didn't want you to, to do this? No. No, no. Interesting. He's an executive banker and he's since retired, but he he did not. He wanted me to go play college football. But you know, that was his dream, not my dream. Right. And when I when I signed up, I told my recruiter, I did well enough on the ASVAB, the test that you take before you get into whatever respective branch. I had a lot of jobs to choose from. And he was showing, you know, he set me down and started to go through the list. Like, for example, he was a firefighter in the Marine Corps. And uh, he was like, okay, Jake, these are our options. And I said, hey, man, I just, or I didn't say man, but I said, hey, Staff Sergeant, I just, just put me down for infantry. And he said, Jake, I mean, look at all these jobs and you got to think about post Marine Corps career. I said, hey, just put me down for infantry. That's that's what I have to do. I'm not doing anything else. Just put me down for infantry or I'll go, I'll go speak to another branch. Did you feel like anything else would be copping out? No, I just felt like it was um, up to me to carry on the legacy of, of being a warfighter in my family because my grandfather did it, my uncle okay. did it. I mean, both grandfathers, both several uncles, and you know, not Marine Corps specific, but... You know, I, I uh, was very convicted in that I needed, that's the only job I could do because I needed to carry it on. I right. needed to do my part, you know, continue stepping forward where my uncle left off. I joined the Marine Corps first and foremost because my dad, he's a former Marine. He told me a lot of different stories about his time while he was in, and it really inspired me and actually made me more interested in joining. A lot of people looked at me as one of those kind of punk kids. Uh, The Marine came up to me, and he talked to me like an adult, like a professional, and I really respected that. The Marine Corps definitely stood out more in my eyes than any other branches. Everybody's reaction was like, no way, are you serious? Do you know how challenging the Marines are? Don't you know how scary it is? And it just motivated me to do it because I never wanted to be the result of, I told you you couldn't do it, I told you it wasn't going to be good enough. My family and my friends, you know, they kind of... Doubt and said that the Marine Corps would be too hard for me, so that made me want to accept the challenge even more and prove them wrong. Tell me about the day that you got hurt. September 20, 2004. Uh, um, that was a shitty day. Where were office. you? I was in Dulab, Iraq. So our primary area of operation was the Sunni Triangle. It was also has been coined the Triangle of Death, mm-hmm. you know, because the Unicorn Triangle or Rainbow Triangle was taken, so they called it the Triangle of Death. It was, um, you knew, you we knew this is going to be a very 
intense mobilization. And we trained very, very, very hard. And we were already a, a pretty tight-knit unit. Like, we were no-shit family, straight up family. And uh, black, white, brown, yellow, didn't matter. Didn't matter religion. You know, race, color, creed was irrelevant. We were a family. Mm. And um, it was awesome. Like, it still is awesome. I mean, it's still talk to so many of these guys that are my brothers and you still speak to them oh yeah 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 it's you can't yes because you know the saying like well you know blood's thicker than water and you can choose your friends you can't choose your family yeah. and i'm like yeah, yeah I'll hold my salad and watch this <laughs> you know you, you the hell you can't yeah because it's pretty amazing to be able to call over well over 100 men and say we have to go somewhere right now. Um, you may, there may be significant violence and blood and you may not come back. And the only question I would get is who's driving. Not a lot of people get that. No. That's, it's, it's loyal and, and faith to a fault almost. And also I, I have to think that there's something to be said for no one else understanding what you're going through. Right. But those people, and, and that's got to also continue when you get home. Absolutely. Okay, so tell me about that day. Because you have said before that you knew something was going to happen. I knew. I knew 100% that we were going to get hit. I don't know how. I knew. I don't know, but I knew. And I mean, you've had time to reflect. Do you think it's it, it was a sixth sense? Do you think that this was, was it a deja vu feeling? Like this was your destiny and no, you knew? No, it wasn't a deja vu feeling. But it was as soon as the, the react got called. I had already had a, a feeling in the pit of my stomach that something wasn't right when we got these orders to go out to this, essentially, it was an ammo dump and secure the ammo dump. And, you know, it was actually supposed to be almost like a rest, relaxation, recover mission because it no one's going to try and go get unexploded ordnance when it's protected by a shit ton of Marines, like unless you you have a death wish. I mean, it's... And so it was a rotation, and this was our rotation to go to Dulab. And then when we got the orders, I I just got this feeling in my gut that it was something wasn't right. Mm. And I remember before I, I left, I told my family, don't send me anything, don't write me, don't watch the news. No news is good news. You're not going to hear from me. I'll see you in seven months. Wow. Because I have a job to do. And, I, you know, my family puts the Jerry and Springer and so I didn't need them in my head, you know? And so I was like, I just want, I need to be hyper-focused for seven months. See you in seven months. You all know that if I die, I died doing something that I love and, and I love you all and you know it. So we're good either way. Okay. Like that type of talk is when you had to write your living will, we all had to get the living wills written out and, and you had to sit down with your respective loved ones, whether family or otherwise, and have the talk you had to. Is that something you have to do before going yeah, into? Yeah, yeah, you have to be prepared because it's you know you may not come back, and so I did that, and they knew that I was very that I was where I was supposed to be, and I believed that, and that of course it was going to be gnarly and dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. But it's where I felt I was destined to be, and so I. Um, we got the orders to do lab and I got that feeling in my gut and I broke my own rule and I called everybody in my family. 
Good for you. So the last call I made was to my father. And I remember he was in Louisiana at the time. And, you know, there's that two, three-second delay, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're familiar Mm -hmm. with. And I knew it was around 1030 at night in Louisiana. And I called, and my my dad answered the phone. And I said, said, hey, Pop. And he knew it was me because I'm the only kid that calls him Pop. And he just said, why am I talking to you? It's like he knew that I knew something wasn't right immediately. I said, I just want to call to tell you that. Oh, he must have been shitting in his pants, Jacob. Yeah. yeah. I just said, I just want to call to tell you that I am the man I am because of you. And that you have made me who I am. And that you have instilled honor and integrity and things in me that no other man could. Mm. And just thank you for loving me the way you've loved me through all my shit. You're, you're the epitome of what a man should be, and I just want to tell you I love you. That's it. And what did he say to you? How long is this mission? I said nine days, because he knew not to ask me where right. or what we were doing. And I said nine days, and he said, I better hear from you in nine days. Mm. I said, yes, sir. And I said, I love you, Pop. And he said, I love you too. Nine days, and you better be okay. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> I can't imagine as a parent what that must feel like. I can't either. And I hope I never do. You know, I pray to God I never do. Because I can't imagine that. Yeah. Wait. Oh, it's got to be exhausting. Exhausting. And so I went to the uh, sh- the shower trailer and got a shower in, clean, fresh camis. And we were getting all the weapons and ammo and everything ready for the mission. And I was walking back to the tent where we slept when we were back on base at Al-Assad. And I walked by Gunny. And Gunny was the the type of man that was uh, that you wanted on your side. Mm. The epitome of you know the salty marine. Like yeah. he was that guy. Yeah. And that's who you need in that chaotic environment. And I walked by him. And Gunny was the type of guy where if you said gave him the proper greeting of the day, good evening, Gunny. If he said good evening back, like something was fucked. <laughs> but if you say like good evening, Gunny, and he's like fuck off, go fuck a cow. <laughs> Like, Gunny's in a good mood. Yeah, Gunny's happy. That's what that meant. Yeah. And I said, good evening, Gunny. And I walked past him. He didn't say shit. And he grabbed the back of my skivvy shirt. You know, because we have the t- It's a T-shirt, the, the olive drab T-shirt. And our little silk short Mel Daisy Dukes. I don't know why we still have them. And he grabbed my shirt and he pulled me back to him and put me in front of him and he hugged me. And he just said, you're going to be good, chick. I love you. But I was like, fuck, I, embra- I embraced him. And I was like, Roger that, Guns, thank you. I love you too. And he said, not disappear. <laughs> so, Roger, go away. You can go away. Got it. Woke up, um, you know, zero dark 30 and loaded up, went out to Dulab. And um, we had an incident that happened the night before that was a very unorthodox incident with two um, high profile targets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was way outside the realm of normalcy. Mm. It was a de- deterrent for what would lead up to my what happened with me and, and my React team. And so that was a very stressful, tense situation because the Iraqi National Guard showed up and surrounded us, and it was it got tense. Obviously, you got out of that situation and talking to you. And then um, not only three hours later, maybe, a react got called. It was right before sun up. 
my guys had just bedded down. Me and nine other Marines made up the react team. And, um, so I had to wake, I had to wake them up and they had only been asleep for maybe an hour and you're constantly tired and hungry and thirsty. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. I get it. And, and it's weird that the, so people understand the way in which the food works. Can you explain to people that a little bit, that it's not, it's like prepackaged and then you take it with you and you only eat when necessary. Like there's a whole. Yeah. You eat for function. You eat for fuel, not enjoyment. And a lot of feeding time depends on if there's a bathroom around, right? Yeah. Well, with us, you get you go when you go. Like, because we didn't have the luxury of. Yeah. See, these are all the things that people don't understand or see that I think is. Yeah. No, we were essentially first world bipods, living exactly like the third world bipods. Mm. But having to operate at a very high quick whip every day. You had to be very high functional. Every day, all day. Right. Super high highs, super low lows, very little in between. All the time. Mm. And to the point of where the boredom boredom of war is a very real thing. Mm. And you get these high intensity moments and then you get a lull. Right. To where you want, you long for the high intensity moments. Because it's, you're just feeling something. Yes. And you just want to come out of that. And it's almost like you get, almost like you, you, you feel complacent and fidgety and like you're, you're anticipating something, but you don't know what. So, so you, you'll take anything. So, and you add on top of that hunger, exhaustion, thirst. Heat, the heat. Ungodly heat. Ungodly. The flies. Oh, my God. The smells. It was, yes. Yeah. And this constant, gnarly, ever-changing environment. It was just insane. And so when that react got called, I, I woke the team up, you know, rubbed their backs and whispered sweet nothings in their ears because that's how we do it. <laughs> and the guys got up and were pissed because you know, of all those things. You know, they just needed a minute, and they couldn't get a minute. And, you know, obviously, I empathize and sympathize with that because I was right there with them, yeah. you know. And some, as soon as I walked out of the tent where we were sleeping out at Dulab, that feeling I had in my gut went right in my throat that quick. And I knew right, right then I knew we were about to get hit. I don't know by what or how bad. I don't know if there will be small arms fire to follow. I don't know, I, but I knew it was about to happen. You can call it my grandfather talking to me from around the grave. You can call it a sixth sense. You can call it intuition. Yeah, I don't care. You know, good news is you can have your beliefs. I can have mine. And hoorah freedom. And so first thing that I was led to do is go to my commanding officer's Humvee and take his bomb blanket out of the front passenger What is seat. a bomb blanket? Kevlar blanket. So you you know the flak jackets. Yeah. So it's basically that, but a blanket. And they call them a bomb blanket. And you cover the floorboard and the bottom of the seat with said blanket. He's, so that if something explodes from underneath you'd you. You'd have some type of protection. He was the only one that had one because we're Marines and we're poor and we're the bastard children of the military. You know, it's just the way it is. And uh, I knew he was bedded down, and he wasn't going to be up anytime soon. So I took something, told me to take the blanket, took the blanket, 
go to the lead vehicle and we operated out of two two-door soft top Humvees, the React team. Because remember in 04, yeah. there was a big uproar. They don't have enough armor. They need yep. more armor. Yep, I remember it well. I'll tell you, my Humvee that my my group of soldiers rode around in, it had uh, canvas doors. It was a normal aluminum Humvee. From my own little personal part of my world, our vehicles were not armored at all. IEDs are made from everyday materials and detonated either by a pressure sensor or remote control. We saw the evolution of, of IEDs from using vegetable cans packed with C4 and wires in a blasting cap um, to more sophisticated where they put IEDs encased in concrete and are built into the road. Troops jury-rigged their vehicles trying to protect themselves any way they can. And so we had two two-door soft-top Humvees unarmored. And uh, I put the I kicked the driver out of the driver's seat. And he who's still to this day my brother, close brother. And we were very close before this. And I remember him getting pissy with me because it was the first because he looked over and he was like, nah, I got it, bro. And I remember looking at him and saying, I'm not asking. Mm. And it was the first direct order I've ever given him. Mm. So he got super pissy. Like his, his, he got his feelings were hurt. Right. And so I put, uh, he scoots over and gives me the look like, like, I can't believe you do that. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, we're at war, bro. Like, yeah, move over. Yeah. Put the bomb blanket down. I tell all the guys button up. If they gave it to you for protection, put it on right now. And which was out of out of the norm for me because it was when it's 138 degrees and you have a 90 pound combat load. You don't need a lot of help being miserable. And so, how much weight is all of that? Around 90 pounds. 90 pounds are carrying around. Yeah, with, with you. when you're when you're fully kitted up with your pack and your rounds, your your mag pouches and your your magazines and the pouches that are loaded, obviously fully yeah. loaded mags. And your LBV and your flak jacket with sappy plates, your Kevlar, your weapon. Yep. You're talking around 90 pounds. And so uh, the guys, you know, neck protectors, growing protectors, flak jackets covered up. Make sure your sappy plates are in the right place. Mm-hmm. And um, your shatterproof goggles. They're not shatterproof. I'll come back to that. False advertising. And so we, he scoots over, tell the guys to button up. I take the radio from the radio man, get in the driver's seat. Driving with my left arm, I'm on the radio with my right arm. Punch it, and within three minutes, we had a triple stack tank mine. It was a pressure plate ignited, meaning when the front left tire made contact with the plate, plate goes down, lights a fuse, bomb goes off. Blew up directly beneath me. It was three 155-millimeter mortar rounds stacked. And In lay terms, what that means is it was a big-ass bomb. Blew up directly beneath me, blew me 30 feet to the top of the Humvee. I knew midair, this is bad. Landed on my head because we're Marines, we believe in good form. And um, I like to say because God's a comedian, I never lost consciousness and I never went into shock. Took you the, never lost consciousness never and you never into went into shock. I remember every single second as if it happened yesterday. Tell me about your injuries. So I hit the deck and um, 
the guy had kicked out of the driver's seat was yelling my last name. He was like, Shick, Shick, because he couldn't see me. Because of the sand over there, it's like baby powder fine, and it gets in everything. And so it almost acts like dust when there's an explosion. Mm -hmm. So on top of the smoke and the soot and the debris, and it, you can't see shit. It's just you're basically feeling around where you're going. You can't see anything. And he couldn't fill me. Is he immediately, his reaction was to go fill in the driver or to grab me, mm -hmm. to fill like, okay, where's Jake? And I wasn't there. And all I could feel was my rounds because my mags exploded when the steering wheel disengaged and hit me in my chest, which broke all my ribs before I was ejected. It's a series of events that happened in a nanosecond. And so he was just shake, shake, shake. And I couldn't breathe. The air had left my lungs, obviously, because I was hit so violently when the dashboard disengaged. And I was trying to respond to tell him, like, hey, bro, I'm, I'm like, I'm good-ish. And shut up, because you're making us a big target. Hush. Like, be quiet. Wow, you were that aware? Absolutely. Enough that you knew him calling your name was going to make you more of a target? Yeah. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to scramble back. To the towards the sound of his voice on top of the abundance of ringing and just mass chaos and ringing in your ears from the was, explosion it was ungodly is there ear protection yeah yes you don't wear i mean you don't you can't wear you can't yeah, you, have you have to be, be able, able to relay to orders you have to be right. able to relay you have to be able to communicate it is vital that's i learned that in the Marine Corps, there is a significant difference between communication and effective communication. Mm. Unbelievable difference mm. that carries over throughout your entire life for mm. everyone. I don't care if you ever served or not. Like you, big difference between communication and effective communication. And so I'm trying to pull myself back to the Humvee, and the only thing that worked was my right arm. It was the only thing that wasn't broken or shattered. And so I'm trying to pull myself back just to hold a hand up or something. To be like, hey, bro, STFU, mm -hmm. still, still at war. <laughs> right. And I'm scooping sand, so I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. And I'll never forget, he comp he broke like all military protocol. And this was the guy that was supposed to be driving. Supposed to be driving. And he's fine. Yeah. And he, I mean, and he was about 130 pounds soaking wet on a great day. He broke protocol and yelled my first, like blood curdling yell my first name. Mm. Jacob. And that fucking crushed me because mm. of the just the how desperate he sounded. And I, I just wanted to comfort him. I just wanted him to know, like, hey, brother, I'm I'm okay. Um, and I couldn't do anything. And it was the most hopeless, like gut wrenching feeling to know he's he's right. Th he's over there. He's right there. And I I can't get to him. There's nothing I can do right now. And it it. It crushed me, crushed me, and um, it's it's crazy that that's where your mind went is that you wanted to comfort him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's my guy, it's my bro, and it's my job. And not only that, on top of that, I mean, I love him without boundaries. You know, so it was tough, and so I I had started. I knew I couldn't get to him, but I could hear the guys from the second vehicle get to the first vehicle, and so I knew they still hadn't found me. And so I was like, all right, I need to start self-assessment. I need to know how how bad is it. 
you know, am I, am I going to die or not? And I, my left leg was essentially wrapped around itself and my fibula and my tibia were exposed, compound fractures. My left boot was blown off and I could only see through my left eye because my shatterproof lenses shattered and I had a piece of lens in my right eye. I didn't see out of my right eye for about three months. Again, false advertisement. And just say shatter resistant <laughs> is all the thing, you know? I'm just saying, it's a simple word change. Play on words. This is misleading shit. God bless you. And so I'm looking at my leg. I see the boot gone, and I just see my sock. I remember thinking two things. One, that's not supposed to be like that. Two, this was a big-ass bomb. This was a significant explosion. To be able to blow my combat boot off. You've worn I can't believe boots. I can't believe how aware you were that you can retell this the way that you're retelling this. I was. I mean, isn't the body supposed to kick into some survival n- mode where you no, can't remember? No medical explanation about why. I've had so many conversations with so many different types of doctors that it's like, bro, you're an anomaly. There's no there's no medical explanation. How are your lungs feeling at this point? Still hadn't taken a breath. You have not taken a breath. No, it's been about three minutes. And so I'm like, okay, I still need to continue my self-assessment just in case God decides to hook it up with a breath or not. (laughs) Like, I'm going to continue to do what I'm trained to do. I'm going to continue to do my job, and if I die, I die. And so I'm I'm going from – first thing I did, honestly, we're trained to do this, so I'm not trying to be derogatory, is you you check your twig and berries, make sure that that's intact. I swear to God, it's part of the training. First mm-hmm. thing you do, it's a completely a psych thing. It's all for your psyche. Amazing. Right? First right. thing, so that's the first thing I did. And I was like, okay, solid. Let's feed up. Let's go. Left leg, I knew it was destroyed. Right leg looked normal, but right foot hurt really badly. So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, right foot's broken, no doubt. And uh, worked my way up. My left arm, I held my left arm up. And at this point, the daylight was starting to come through the smoke in the sand. And I saw daylight through my left arm and part of my hand was hanging down by my left elbow. Mm. And so I was like, okay, left arm's destroyed. Then I go to fill my chest, ungodly pain. So I knew my ribs are broken, still haven't taken a breath, can't see out of my right eye. I was like, all right, well, right arm's the only thing that's really good to go. And then I did go back and check my manhood one more time. I'm going to be honest. I can understand that. And it was um, by this time, I'm start. I'm the not being able to breathe is getting more and more of my attention. You know, you know how it is if you're trying to swim to a certain point and you, you almost get start to feel a panic start to set in. Yeah, it's the fight or flight kicking in, right? Absolutely. And um, so I, I'm thinking, okay, I'm bleeding out. I know my my rib cage is just crushed. My ribs are done, and I don't know if they're punctured. I don't know what's happening on, internally. And so I immediately start to talk to God. I said, um, "Hey, big man, this is exactly what I said in my head." said, hey, big man, one favor. Don't take me in front, of my, in front of my brothers. That's all I ask. As soon as the skids leave the deck, I'm all yours. 
but please don't allow my brothers to watch me die. That's mm. all I ask. And why was that important to you? Because I didn't want their, their last vision of me to be that. Right. And I wanted them to know that I will continue fighting. Are you struggling to sleep these days? You are not alone. One in three U.S. adults don't get enough sleep. And if you're not sleeping enough, it can affect your cognitive functions during the day like learning, problem solving, and decision making. Also, a good night's sleep is like a magic remedy for the brain and body. When we sleep well, we are more focused and relaxed. And best of all, sleep makes us happier. And we can use more of that. And that is why I am partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. People who don't sleep are more prone to accidents, weight gain, and depression. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body deserve, like soundscapes and over a hundred sleep stories narrated by soothing voices from some of your favorite shows. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with help from Calm. Right now, Sorry Not Sorry listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash sorry. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash sorry. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash sorry. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? Nope, didn't think so. With Everlane, you'll never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. Everlane is radically transparent about every step in their process. With their responsible sourcing and ethical factories, you actually know where your clothes are coming from, how they're made, and how they price each item. No other company is as direct and open about their business as Everlane. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Also in 2018, Everlane made a commitment to eliminate all virgin plastic from their supply chain by 2021. I love their quality cotton basics and their outerwear made from recycled water bottles. So cool, right? So right now you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash sorry. Plus, you will get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash sorry. Everlane.com slash sorry. For people that have not, that have no concept of what war looks like, except for what we see in movies, how can you describe it in a way where people can understand the magnitude of the responsibility, the pressure the fear yeah you know it's interesting is that 2006 i did a documentary with gandolfini uh james gandolfini may rest in peace unbelievable human being and uh, he asked me this question and he said one word describe all those things in conjunction to war and i just said unforgiving and i said but i have to add another word it's unforgiving but necessary you still feel that way in some cases, extreme circumstances. 
So how did you get out of? I so the guys come up to me finally, and um, how long was it before they came up to you? Probably almost four minutes, and um, it was all all of them, all nine, come up to me and. We got you, Shick. We got you. We got you, brother. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And um, I take a breath. And the first thing I say is develop 360. Security perimeter. Mm. Develop 360. Mm. And they're like, oh, shit, yeah. I'm like, yeah, no shit. Still the war. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, hello. <laughs> and so they did. And few guys were designated to get me to the second vehicle while the other guys set up perimeter security. And we uh, beat feet back to the command post where Doc started working on me. And he, Doc would only hit me with two sticks of morphine. And so to say that I was pissed off at this time. I can't even imagine what you were like. Drastic understatement. Because at this point, you're probably feeling every part of your body, every single cell that that Pain, is. That's it's not possible to describe. And what was his reasoning for only giving you two morphine sticks? Because I didn't know, and I was fucking pissed. Because I was like, "Hey, bro, like I'm in a shit ton of pain, and you have the remedy, and you're not sharing. Like you're being a stingy bastard." Think I need more of what you've got, and you're not giving it to me. Mm -hmm. But he was he was in work mode. He was not even acknowledging me, calling him every name in the book mm -hmm. while he's trying to save my life. And right I'm, here, I am being colossal prick because <laughs> I was in survival mode. I didn't know how to be a severely wounded marine. I wasn't trained that. I'm just trying to survive, and so I, I think something that carried over from my childhood. It was just like okay, anger, fight, and he he could only give me so much because he explained later if you if you get too much too quickly the the muscles around your lungs could relax so much that you, you suffocate yeah. and i was like oh okay that makes sense sorry about mm -hmm. all the other shit <laughs> sorry about all the names <laughs> yeah my bad bro like yeah didn't know that and so it took 42 minutes for the black hawk to come get me because all there was no fighter escorts available to Right, because it's not only the Black Hawk, it's everything around the Black Hawk that has to escort the Black Hawk so that you're safe. S somewhat. Itch. Here's why the standard operating procedure exists as it does. When you're sending in a medevac into a hot landing zone, that bird has to have a fighter escort because it is, here's the reasoning. Okay. That aircraft is more expensive to replace than me. When you break it down all the way down, that's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. And I'm all right with it because we have to we have to be cognizant of your taxpayer dollar somewhere, somehow. When you sign up, it's one of those things that you just you accept. Because when you train me to be an elite warfighter and then you compare that to the cost of that aircraft, one far outweighs the other. And that's just the way it is. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're okay with that. I'm not okay with that. But. And, and it, it's okay that you're not okay with that. So it... It was, they were all dispatched till four. A lot of fighting going on. They're all dispatched. Yeah. And so I was category four at the time, which means um, urgent surgery. So they're radioing in to battalion saying, hey, we have a Marines category four. We need medevac Ricky Tick like yesterday. Yeah. And they're scrambling, trying to figure it out. 
And there was a uh, Texas Army Air National Guard pilot back at the base that I saw listening to the transmission. And my, I don't remember if it was my CO or my platoon sergeant, but someone said, this Marine is rapidly approaching Category 5, which means expectant, going to die. And the Air Texas Army Air National Guard pilot got his crew together, and he said, I don't give a fuck what the rules say, we're going to get this Marine. And came and got me. And had it not been for that guy, and a myriad of things, I would not have made it out of there. Here's why I'm I'm so grateful and thankful for not having lost consciousness and having my wits about me was I was able to tell every one of those men how much I love them. I was able to look at them in the face and tell them things because of the unbelievable circumstances that I probably would not have done mm. otherwise. And I got to tell them how much I love them and how much they mean to me. Why much, was that so important to you? Because I wanted them to know that regardless of the facade of being these elite gladiators and all the bullshit that comes with that, we are still human beings first. And it's okay to go go on and do what you're going to have to do, what your government's telling you to do and what you've trained to do. But you can't lose the humanity. But love and be love first. Lead with love. You're going to have to do gnarly shit, but lead with love. That's got to be so hard to remember. It was a very, very emotional. I can't even, I can't even imagine. It was very emotional. Because again, I feel like we have this perception of when someone gets hit to that capacity, that they don't remember, that they don't have their wits about them, that they're sedated Mm -hmm. in a way that they wouldn't be able to communicate. So to hear this, it's, uh, it's kind of shocking. Yeah. It would be hard for Hollywood to replicate that day. Because it's hard to, regardless of your experience, training in the acting realm, that's something that you that's in your soul that is unbelievably hard to replicate in an authentic manner. But even the way in which you describe that moment, there is something cinematic about it. That's why I asked you the question about what we see in movies versus yeah. the reality. Yeah. Because you were talking about the dust Oh yeah, oh and for that, sure. And that kicking up and and you think of those moments when you watch those scenes in movies. Oh yeah, and I of course you know where my head goes every time I see one of those scenes. Right to that day. How does it not? I mean it's it's just it's automatic. It's effortless for my head to go to that day. So how long after you were hit did you get on that? Forty two minutes the bird the blackout touchdown. Wow. That's quick. They loaded me into the Blackhawk, and I was on the gurney, and I was, God, the, the fucking pain. Was, I was in so much pain. And they loaded me on the bird, and I remember when they loaded me on, of course, I'm naked. I mean, Doc had cut off all my, to do the yeah. assessment, started administering aid. And the sheet, I just remember thinking, there's no way in hell I could be in more pain than I'm in right now. It's not human. Was it like possible. a burning? What did, What kind of pain is it? I would imagine it would be like being run over by a tank on a tank track, but being alert and aware the entire time, and then it backing up and then going forward and just over and over and over. And I remember they're loading me on the Blackhawk, and the rotor wash from the rotors blew up the sheet, and some of the sand blew up. The wash blew up some of the bandages, and some of the sand blew into the 
wounds. Oh, God. And I just remember thinking, nope. It, yeah, it just got worse. Like, it can, it can get worse. It can always get worse. Everything can always be worse. And I remember they loaded me on the bird. And um, my platoon sergeant, who's just a Marine's Marine. And, uh, you know, I love the dude. I knew he loved me. You know, and uh, he always called me Jack London. <laughs> Because my grandfather was Jack London Schick, my second generation Marine Jack London Schick Jr., and so he, he always called me Jack London. And he was the last one on the bird. And I'll never forget. He leaned in and he kissed me on my forehead and he said, We'll see you soon, Jack London. And he was trying not to cry. And I knew he was full of shit. And so I I was thankful for that because I was like, Well, fuck you. You'll see. You'll see me again. Like it made me want to fight harder because mm. I felt the life leaving my body. I knew I was dying. And um, we took off, and I remember getting the attention of one of the litter crew with my hand because you're strapped, like you're strapped in. You can't move. And he came over, young, young kid. I mean, I was 22. He was probably 18. But in military years, those are light years. Mm-hmm. And he came over and he got in my ear, or he put his ear by my mouth. Because I, I, I didn't, wasn't wearing a headset. And if you're not wearing a headset in the back one, you, you know. You can't hear yeah, shit. Yeah, you can't hear anything. And so he put his ear right by my mouth, and I yelled, how long? And I remember when I yelled, like, I felt more life leave my body. Like, I knew I was using energy, energy I shouldn't yeah. be using. Mm-hmm. And he radioed up front to the captain. He came back, and he got in my right ear. And he yelled in my right ear, 12 mics, 12 minutes. And I remember right away I talked to God again. I said, hey, big man. I'm going to have to renege on the original verbal agreement because I'm fairly certain I can do 12 more minutes, you know, as if I had a choice. But obviously he granted me that. And um, we land in, in uh, Balad, Field Hospital near Baghdad, and they take me off the bird. And, I mean, there is a crew waiting on me right there. And they start working on me before I'm even in the freaking tent, and it pissed me off. Why? Because I just wanted more drugs. Like, let me right. get some more drugs and then start and then fucking you can with me. Work on me. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to reset my left leg, my arm, and I was, and then their name rank, name rank social, name rank social, name rank social, trying to keep me alert and aware. And I knew what they were doing, which pissed me off more. And Are so, you in a hospital at this point? Or no, is it like it's a tent? a tent. It's a tent. It's a filled hospital, a tent with beds, essentially. And so from the landing pad to the entrance of the tent, they're doing all this shit, and I'm pissed because I'm like, hey, somebody just shoot me up with some shit. Like, you couldn't bring it out of the tent? Right. <laughs> like, come on. And then name rank social. Name rank social. And then, so I was like, it's, ta-, you know, grunts have what's called meat tags. There are our dog tags with all of our information, usually on our left rib cage, just in case mm-hmm. you're unidentifiable, right. you can be identified. And so I just pointed at my ribs and I said, it's right there. I'm not saying another word. Because <laughs> every time I talk, every time someone talked to me, it was like when you slam your finger in the door and someone's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And every time they say, are you okay? It makes the pain worse. Uh-huh. Like it wouldn't be as bad if they would just shut up. Uh-huh. But are you okay? Are you okay? That's what it was like. Uh-huh. So I just wanted everyone to shut the fuck up. And But they were doing their job. Uh, again, I was not trained how to be a really wounded Marine. We get in the tent, no shit. <laughs> One of the doctors is sewing up my face. And he said, oops. Mm. 
And so I, I'm like, I look up. I'm like, what do you mean, oops, doc? He said, verbatim, hey, Marine, sorry, I dicked up on your stitches. We're going to have to start again. And at this point, I have the sheet up to my neck, clean sheet. They'd already put a clean sheet on me, and they've already got me st- stuck with IVs, and they're starting to administer things. And so I'm, I'm starting to feel a little better, still gnarly. And I said, hey, Doc, I don't know if you've seen me from the neck down yet. Fairly certain scratches on my face are the least of our worries right now. And he gave like a nod to the anesthetist, and I, that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> like, wow. hey, p- please put this money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I remember Nurse Jacks waking me up, however long later. I lose track of time at this point. And um, never forget, she said, hey, Maureen, I hate to tell you this, but we had to take your right foot. And so immediately I think of when I'm hit and I'm on the deck and I'm doing my self-assessment and I'm seeing my left leg wrapped around itself with my fibula, my tibia exposed, and my right leg looked normal, but my right foot hurt. Right. And I hear her say, sorry, Marie, we had to take your right foot. So I think right away, well, they took the wrong fucking foot. And then I remember thinking, like, I mean, they had a 50-50 shot. It's good enough for government work. Okay. We'll get through it. You know? And I was like, are, are you kidding? She's like, no, I'm so sorry. And I was like, well, what about the left one? She's like, no, you still have the left one. And I said, well, you took the wrong foot. And she explained, no, honey, your right foot was dead when you got here. The, the firewall on the Humvee had folded over my right foot and crushed my foot, which impeded the blood flow to my foot before I was blown out. But it looked normal. So at this point, are you even thinking about back home? It's right then was the next thought. That was the next, okay. And she said, uh, you know, we're getting you out of here. Do you want to make a phone call from the satellite phone? And I said, yes. Who did you call? I had to call my dad. You called your dad? To this day, this hardest phone call I've ever made. This was probably about four days after I had spoken to him. I knew he was alone because I knew that my stepmom and my little brother were at the ranch in San Antonio. And so I knew he was by himself. And uh, he answered the phone, and I said, hey, Pop. He said, why am I talking to you? I said, they got me, Dad. And he said, what do you mean they got you? I said, they got me, Dad. I'm hurt. And he said, how hurt? I said, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm hurt bad. They had to take my right foot. And there was a long pause, and he said, are you going to make it? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, we're going to get with the family readiness group, and you know, we're going to see you soon. You just keep fighting, Jacob. You keep fighting. And I um, I felt so very alone, vulnerable, almost like I was a little boy. And I just wanted my dad with me. And I just remember telling him, please hurry. Please hurry. And he said, you're going to be fine, son. I love you. And it was fucking emotional as hell. And hung up the phone and I looked at, looked at Nurse Jackson. I was like, let's get the fuck out of here. Like, Yeah. And she she stayed with me until I got into Germany, and man, that was a that was a rough flight, rough. Flight. So you flew from Baghdad to Germany, yeah, and on what like a C one forty? Yeah, or something a like huge that? bird that the guys like me call the pain tube because it's just littered with gurneys, stacked three high all the way down the bird. Oh my god! And just the moans and the groans and the. It was just the smells of the, we lost two guys on the bird on the way to Germany. And, and you're hearing all of that? All of it. 
And every bump, like every single, even the minute instances Pressure change. Of, and of, of turbulence was like being blown up all over again because my body was that, that beaten up. And it was in such bad shape that every little bump affected everything. I remember throwing up on like pure morphine like three times. It was horrible, horrible. Got into Germany, and by the grace of God, one of my best friends from Capo High School's little brother was there. He was with the first calf with the army and stationed in Germany. And had already gotten word Jake's on his way. Jake got hit, and he's on his way to Germany. Oh my God. And Josh was waiting for me when the ambulance doors were <gasps> open. And he put his head on my chest as soon as he saw me and started bawling. Not you, not you. And it was, again, very emotional, very... And I just remember grabbing his face. I was always called him Joshy. And I was just patting him on the face. I was like, it's okay, Joshy. And then the pain from my broken ribs and his giant dome piece being on my head, like, hurt. And so I just pushed his head off. And I was like, hey, I love you. That hurts. Don't do that. <laughs> and he accompanied me, like, everywhere. He went in, going up to the elevator, going into the room, going in, and they washing me out, preparing me for the OR again. And Josh was walking right next to the, the gurney, like, they said, hey, Sergeant, you, know, you we're about to take him into the operating room. You can't come in. And he was, he, I'm not fucking leaving his side. <laughs> That's wow. exactly what he said. Wow. And I was like, Joshy, like, just wait outside. You know, and it was crazy, crazy how the universe works, you know. Got done. Get out of there. I was only in Germany 17 hours because I got pretty critical from Iraq to Germany. And uh, my body was not responding well to the things they, were, they did in Germany. And so they send me to Bethesda, Maryland. And I land in Bethesda, Maryland. And the, they come up, and I remember the doors opening. And my whole family was there. You know, my parents, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins. My, I mean, it was, everybody was there. And I remember my dad, because I was unrecognizable at this point, because my head was so swollen, my eyes were swollen shut. Mm. And just my body was just unbelievably unbelievably riddled with trauma and he put his hand on my chest and he said hey Bubba is that you and all I could say was get your damn hand off my chest mm -hmm. and he pulled his hand off looked at my family he's like yeah that's Jake mm -hmm. so they pull me off and take me down to ICU and they start prepping me for the OR and every 48 72 hours the next three months I was in, oper I was in the operating room and they're robbing from Peter to give the Paul, put my body back together and try and save my left arm, my left leg. Little did I know that that, that night is when my personal battle is going to start. My own war. Yeah. And that I, that I was going to be unbelievably tested every single day, all day long, over and over and over and over. Ooh, I'm so very excited to tell you about Four Sigmatic because I've started incorporating their drinks into my daily routine and I feel so much better. Four Sigmatic is a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks that benefit our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live healthier lives. They make a wide variety of blends, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, matcha, superfood blends, and more. Why mushrooms? Well, Four Sigmatic's Mushroom Coffee with Lion's Mane promotes productivity, focus, and creativity. And the best part is that it's coffee without the jitters. 
Lion's mane mushrooms have long been used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation and to clarify, it tastes just like coffee, not mushrooms. They are offering my listeners 15% off. All you have to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash sorry. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash sorry for 15% off. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take courses in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and so much more. So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has something for you. I'm really interested in their photography classes and web design course. So if you want to join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare, you're in luck. They're giving a special offer to my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Sorry Not Sorry listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash sorry. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash sorry to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash sorry. There's a lot of focus on physical rehabilitation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was there any focus on the mental rehabilitation? I wanted nothing to do with it. Was it offered to you? Yes. And you just weren't ready. Wanted nothing, nothing to do with it. To do with anyone. Was in it a mandatory? They basically had to ask me every so often, like, "What's your name? What hospital are you in? What month is it?" Like that was mandatory. Were they asking you, are you having nightmares? No, they knew that. They knew that. Well, yeah. But it was, I didn't have shit to say to them. And so I, um, I had started to really struggle with suicidal ideation. And I really started to question my worth, self-worth. And am I, am I more of a burden to my family and friends by just existing? Or would it be easier if I were gone? But still thinking about them more than you. Right which is a common theme with you, Jacob. Yeah. I know. I got to get that shit wired tight. So I decided, okay, I'm going to, I should probably check out. It'll just be easier for everybody else. You know, I've had a hell of a run. Call it what it is. You know, and, and so it, I decided exactly how I was going to do it, with, like most males anyway, was with a weapon. And I'd gotten a phone call from the father of a Marine I fought with in Iraq for my unit and said, we, we lost him last night. <sighs> and it completely altered the course of my life. I knew I, I have to get off of this shit because I can't even, I can't even put together a semi coherent thought because I'm just chasing my first high. Is anyone time. confronting you with this at this yeah. point? Yeah. So the person I was living with at the time told me, almost verbatim, the difference between eating a bullet and living the way you're living is time, but the outcome's the exact same. You're just slowly killing yourself. Mm -hmm. And she told me, um, which is really powerful. She said, the only way to honor those men 
that didn't come home and those that did and still love and respect you is by living well. That's the only way to truly honor them. And it hit me. And smart. Like a freaking freight train. Mm-hmm. And so I called Doc the next morning back in San Antonio. I said, hey, Doc, good news. I'm getting off all the trucks. She's like, okay, Jake, how are you going to do that? I was like, I'm just not going to take the first dose. I'm just getting off all the drugs. And she said, well, I'd highly advise against that. And I was like, well, why? She said, you'll have a massive heart attack and die. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, roger that. Plan A's no-go. What's plan B look like? Mm-hmm. And she said, you're going to have to come back to San Antonio. We're going to have to wean you off the drugs. And this is all shit I didn't want to hear. I did not want to go yeah, back to the hospital. Yeah, you wanted it done now, right? You right wanted the second. it out of your system. Straight up instant gratification. Yeah, you don't seem like the, the patient... Me and patients have an ongoing battle. Yeah. I remember being so violently ill that it was the only time throughout this two-year evolution of recovery, physically, mentally, otherwise, that I told God, I'm ready when you are. Mm. I'm done fighting. So you'd been through all of that. And it took that. And it took withdrawing from drugs to make you go, okay, I'm ready now. That broke me. Wow. That broke me. I, and I can honestly say, I don't know, and I get asked this a lot in Q&A and, and uh, speaking engagements, what was worse, coming off the drugs or the explosion? And I can sit here and honestly tell you, I don't know. Really? I'm not sure which one was worse. Opioid prescription numbers shot up from 2004 through 2012 as veterans returned home from Afghanistan and Iraq deployments and sought treatment for acute and chronic pain. During that time, pain was considered the fifth vital sign. Tucson VA Chief of Staff Anthony Stazzoni says pain had to be treated. And everybody needed to check for pain and treat pain to whatever extent possible, and we had limited means. He says opioids became the go-to medication that doctors prescribed in the public and private sectors. They just opened up Pandora's box. The VA was, uh, was guilty of just handing out opiates like, like they were candy. I just want to know, like, between that rock bottom and now, how you got to this place and where you want to go from here. And yeah. I, I want to hear about, I want to hear about 22 Kill. Yeah. And I want to hear about, I want you to really talk to the suicide problem we have. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot. You're, you're very intuitive. I have a sign in my son's bathroom that's above the toilet. It's on the wall above their toilet. And, and I make them read it. Like I, I just say, it's just a thing I do. I say, I want to hear you read it when you go in and when you leave. Every time. Well, Dad, what if I'm going to throw something? What did I just say? You want me to read it every time? Okay, so do you still need to ask the question you're about to ask? No, sir. Okay, good. Glad that we're crystal. And I make them read it every single time they go in and go out. What's it say? Stay humble, be kind, work hard. It's perfect. That's it. I was raised by a man who had seen the effects of war on the human condition and allowed his fear to dictate my potential greatness. It wasn't my fear, it was his fear. We have to have control of our own fear. It will be ever-present. I don't give a shit how tough you think you are or aren't. When it's your time, your time. It's your time. It, there's no negotiating. It's like when my Mimi saw me in San Antonio when she first came to see me because she had never been on a plane, was not getting on a plane. And my dad drove her up to San Antonio, and she walked in my room. She put her hand on my shoulder, and her eyes welled up with tears, and all she said was, 
well, baby, I guess God doesn't want you and the devil won't have you. Hmm. And I said, I'll take it, Mimi. Mm-hmm. Just wasn't your time. Right. And so I've accepted the fact that no matter how much we bullshit ourselves, yeah, none of us have absolutely anything under control. None of us. And I've accepted that. I've made peace with that. And I've, I've made peace with being very real and authentic and raw with people, even when I know it's going to sting. Because my genuineness is, is pure. It comes out of a, a place of love. Because I believe when men and women are talking to me and they're like, Jake, I don't know, I don't know what my purpose is anymore. I, I can't put out fires anymore. Or I can't go chase bad guys anymore. Or I can't, et cetera, et cetera, in the service industry. And they're on the green side, military blue being law enforcement, red being fire rescue. I don't know what my purpose is. And I'm like, look, listen, listen to me. You're overthinking it. From the time we're born to the time we die, two objectives, love and be loved. Everything else is bullshit. Everything else is simply filler. Love and be loved. Focus on that and believe that you're worth receiving that love. Believe that. And so often we're looking for the external things to control, like putting out a fire or getting the bad guys. And and we have all that inside of us that sometimes needs to be controlled as well. Yeah. Find solace in the fact that nothing's under control. And maybe beauty. That maybe find the beauty in that. It is unbelievably freeing. Unbelievably freeing to know you don't have control over shit except yourself. That's it. I'm going to ask a really blunt question. Send it. Why do so many veterans kill themselves? So I believe through our data collection and research, the three contributing factors to veteran suicide are finances, relationships, and self-medication, not in any sequential order. But finances, medication, self-medication, and relationships. Well, so if, if you look at the statistics on the civilian side of the ball, they're eerily similar. Yeah. It's a numbers game. Okay, it's a numbers game. You really have to break the statistics down all the way. All the way. There's a reason that women veterans lead in everything. Depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, suicidal ideation, suicide, like o- obesity. You name it, they lead it. Because there's way less of them than there is males. Mm -hmm. It's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. So to really be very open and honest about the statistics, because anyone can make any study or white paper say whatever it wants to say. Right, that's true. I worked in the research world for too long to know. I mean, you can fudge stuff in order to maintain that DOD grant or whatever. And so when we're very open and honest about these numbers and what they really mean, the true meaning that is, that is never driven by self-interest or self-gain, you will get results. In the work we're doing, we are getting the results because it is not driven by self-interest, self-gain. There's no room for self-interest, self-gain in the fight for the greater good. There's no room. Say that again for the people in the back. Yeah. No room for self-interest, self-gain in the fight for the greater good. Zero. You will 100% take away from productivity and effectiveness every time. Every time. And so that's why, back to the humility. Regardless of the things that I've done publicly or in entertainment or whatever, 
I could give a shit about being a well-known, famous, whatever. But I will do whatever I can do to broaden the platform in order to strengthen the foundation and broaden the scope and help more people help themselves. I will do whatever I have to do. And I'm surrounded by people that are better than me on a daily basis. And so by default, I'm better. That's a free one. Mm. And so I'm driven and expected to be driven and expected to push and hold myself accountable and hold others accountable. And that's a beautiful thing because it's you maintain that constant accountability and that constant love without boundaries, knowing pain is inevitable. That's courage. And working with these men and women, seeing them work with these other men and women and children, knowing they're, they're going to get hurt. They love so hard, so authentically all the way. Knowing we're going to lose some of these people. Special Agent Drew Barnett, who served with Navy SEALs in Afghanistan, refused to believe that he had PTSD. During my early training in the Navy, one of uh, our instructors said, you know, hey guys, it's better to die than look stupid. Just make sure you don't do both. And, and thinking about that, I realized um, that is a lot of the mindset that we have is uh, we don't want to, one, look weak, or we don't want to be someone who's not dependable. And then there's Maya Marshall part of the 15% of service members who are female. She left the Army as a sergeant after five years. Shame, she says, kept her from getting help. It came from combat, yes, but okay, you've only been to combat one time. You've only been in the service for this long. I felt that they would be like, okay, you're a female. Just get your feelings out of it and just toughen up. So you thought maybe you didn't deserve it. Yes. You hadn't seen enough combat. Yes. You hadn't been in long enough. You're a girl. Yes. Maybe you're mis- <laughs> Maybe my, my emotions, maybe it is my emotions. A lot of times I did say, okay, well, maybe it is my emotions. Maybe I do just need to push those aside and just toughen up and just move forward and drive on. What do we need to do to take better care of our veterans coming out of active duty? So I believe that there needs to be a train-in, train-out model. That is brilliant. And such a no-brainer. Like you just said, that a light bulb went off in my head. Yeah, I don't understand. Like a boot camp. For civilian society. For civilian society. So here's the God's honest truth about why guys like me miss combat. I don't expect anyone to fully understand this, that here's it, it hasn't been and said combat okay but you can relate enough to where you would you'll get it the reason guys like me miss being in the middle of nowhere with a weapon hunting people who are hunting us is because it's easier flat out 100 percent, full transparency it's easier it's inherently more dangerous but it is a hundred times easier than being a civilian here in this first world nation Do you think that's because when you're there, you're so concentrated on one thing? I I think that has a lot to do with it. And you don't have to deal with your family responsibility. Paying bills. Paying bills. What's for dinner? Who's taking who to school? Who's picking up? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? Who's going to take to this birthday Mm -hmm. party? Who's going to go live or die? And that's the thing. I believe that it gets so muddled because our job, truly, our real jobs, as human beings, 
I don't care where you're from or what's your socioeconomic, where you live, love and be loved. Everything else is bullshit. And the reason life gets hard, human element free will. It's hard because we make it hard. So what would be elements that you would put in place for for that kind of train out policy? So for me, train out would be have a lot to do with everyday knowledge of living, how to fill a prescription, how to pay bills online or otherwise, set up bank accounts, money market accounts, how to register your kid for school, how to et cetera, et cetera. And also mandatory therapy. You're going to see a therapist. You're going to deal with your shit, which probably exists from when you were a kid anyway and just was exacerbated by your time in service. So mandatory therapy or what's the consequence if you don't do mandatory therapy? I don't know. I haven't thought of, I don't know. I don't, I don't, that's, not, I don't, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, my thing is it just in the military, it's, when you're told to do something, you do it. And if you don't, yeah, I mean, there's right. there's a reprimand. But for me, it's just like it doesn't have to be seen as a drag. I believe... Are you in, a, are you in therapy now? Hell yes. Stigma surrounding post-traumatic stress disorder sometimes discourages vets from seeking treatment. The VA's chief mental health consultant is Dr. Harold Cudler. The most important thing to remove the stigma from PTSD is for people to talk about it. But in talking about it, not fall into the stereotypes. For people who have PTSD, they're at risk for depression, for substance abuse. Uh, They're at higher risk for suicide, largely because of the nature of PTSD, to think about the world and yourself in negative terms. And this idea that nothing could ever go right. Army Colonel Greg Gadsden was blown out of his passenger seat by a roadside bomb. He was in Baghdad. 2007. His physical injuries were so severe, doctors assumed he would suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, but he was too embarrassed to accept it. Why did you find it so hard to really believe that you had post-traumatic stress? It was not something that I could identify with. You know, as a as an athlete, as a as an officer, as a leader, we're trained to to override pain, to override uh, doubt. Tell me about 22 Kill and the work that you do. <laughs> we do the work, that everything we've talked about. That's that's what you do. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the name that I hear all the time, all the time, about how strong the name is. Like, oh, it's a strong name. I don't know if we can. Well, no shit. That's the point. You know, we wouldn't talk about it if it was 22 puppies. Like, it Hell, we can't talk about depression, right? And you want, I mean, yeah, it's 22 kill. So in 2012 was when the first study from the VA came out stating that on average 22 veterans die by suicide every day. That was the very first study? First study. 2012. 22 veterans. And so it was thought about and came to the general consensus that, all right, well, 22, number, kill, it is an act. It is an act. I'm just going to call it 22 Kill and um, started as an awareness campaign. So the 22 push-up challenge was born in 2012 and it went viral in 2016. So good to go for overnight success. And it went viral after The Rock did it. Regardless of the fact that tens of thousands of regular people did it before him, 
just goes to show you where we are as a society. You know, let's put everybody in a box so we can easily define them and placate to our own comfort zone. Anyway, it went it went viral and uh, we got a lot of attention and we we ended up establishing our five hundred one c three status in twenty fifteen. And at the time, we were essentially a pass through organization, a catch all. Like with family and and friends would send people to us, and then we would send them on to whomever. We were partnered with dozens and dozens and dozens of other nonprofits. And in 2016, I realized, okay, look, we, we have to offer in-house stuff because I had a, a donor tell me, hey, Jake, where did that 100 bucks go? What did it go to that I gave you, one, you know, last year mm-hmm. or whatever? And I had no freaking clue. I was like, I, I don't know. I couldn't right. tell you. It's like, I, I have no idea. And it made me feel horrible because I was like, hey, you know, that's not – I'm not being a good steward and custodian of these donor dollars because I can't answer to the penny, mm-hmm. and that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so we, this needs to be changed. One way to change that is to utilize programming that it, we know works and start implementing that to where when these friends and family and warriors or first responders come into our doors, we can say, hey, you need to go see that person down the hall that has a lot of letters behind their name that can tell you exactly what program you would probably fit best into. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have a, a very rigid process and we've spent a lot of time, effort, and resources to get the the numbers wired very tight to where we can account to every single penny, every single penny. And we offer the program traditional therapy, one-on-one therapy, the reason people ask me, why traditional therapy? Why the traditional sense? Here's why. Looking at scientific data when it comes to brain health, nothing can top one-on-one therapy. Mm-hmm. Nothing can stand up to the numbers that one-on-one therapy has. Nothing. I don't care if you're talking about cranial magnetic simulation, strategic memory advanced reasoning training, exposure therapy. I don't care. Pick one. It does not compare to one-on-one therapy. It does not have the numbers that it does. I'm sorry, but one-on-one therapy kicks the shit out of all of them. And it gives you gr- a great foundation to, really? to build mental recovery on Absolutely. the tools. Now, and, and, and on that note, I'm not saying that those other forms aren't beneficial. That is Correct. not what I'm saying. I'm saying the springboard to said other forms should be the one-on-one therapy. Every single person that can put a sentence together on this planet should see a therapist regularly. I think we we think the right thing to say is thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. It then occurred to me through all of my work with veterans that people really have no idea what that means. None, right? Thank you for your service. Like, what does that mean to people? Right. It's very different for me, right? For me, it was showing appreciation, but the veterans must sort of look at us and just be like, oh, really? Like, you have any idea of what service I provide for you? So interesting that you bring this up. Early on in my recovery, if I had to go to the store to get milk or cheese or eggs, like, I hated, hated being stopped because I didn't want to people. I just wanted to get my milk or eggs or fucking cheese and leave. But people sometimes stop me and say, young man, did that happen in overseas? Well, yes. Well, thank you for your service. Oftentimes, they would get emotional just in the thank you. 
where in the beginning really freaked me out. Mm -hmm. Like it, it gave me anxiety, it made me anxious. And I just wanted to remove myself from the environment. Because you weren't comfortable taking appreciation? Receiving it. I was just doing a job. Why are you thanking me for doing a job? Like, are you a computer analyst? Like, I'm not going to thank you for being a computer analyst. Like, it's just it's one of those things. Mm. Okay? And this is early on. September will be, you know, 15 years since I've been hit. And so now what I see happening, now when people say, hey, thank you for your service, I just, and I, I say you're worth it. You're worth it. And mean it. Because they are. And I don't care if they think the way I think or pray the way I pray or believe the way I believe or vote the way I vote. Is irrelevant to me. It's irrelevant. I mean, it just is. Is there something better for me to say when I see someone in uniform? You know, what would be the perfect thing for me to say? So much pressure right now. Oh, this is shit. The perfect thing for you to say. Because I think everybody wants to show appreciation to our... Yeah, you know, well, but with you, you're, here's the thing, no bullshit, you're just further along in your life journey than a lot of people. And so for you to say what I would tell you to say it would be different for you to say it than someone who's not is in, this far along because it, I, don't, it, I don't think it would be genuine or authentic. Like for you, I think the perfect thing to say would be, hey, I just wanted to say thank you for believing that me and my family are worth fighting, mm. bleeding, and dying for because you're equally as worth it. Like, because thank you is so surface level. It's just surface level bullshit. We're, I would say, I would venture to guess, semi-educated, half, half of the time, the thank you for your service is for them. It's not even for the warrior. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yep. And so my thing is, is like, if you're going to say something, mean it. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Good, bad, or indifferent, because you're going to get complacent and you're going to have a integrity violator moment and you're going to fuck up and that's okay. But say what you mean and mean what you say. Like if you're not, if you're intimidated, fucking do it anyway. Yeah. I haven't learned anything from my triumphant moments. Everything I know, I know because of tragedy. Everything. Every lesson. Every single one. What comes next for you? In this journey? So for me, it's, I'm really, I'm just focused on being present with compassion, absent of comparison today. I'm, I'm really focused on living in the now. You know, and when is the now? Always. It's always right now. In your darkest day, what was the one thing you needed to hear? I love you. So if there's anyone out there listening, do you speak right now? What would you say to them that are in that dark place? You are worth living well. You're, You're worth living well. You are worth living well. Thanks, Jake. There's a cliched but important saying that those who serve in our military are told when they join. They are writing a blank check made out to the United States for an amount up to and including their life. It puts at the forefront of their mind the magnitude of what they could be forced to give up in the service of their nation. The courage and the selflessness it takes to sign that contract after hearing those words is remarkable. For far too many of those brave souls, 
our nation has cashed that check for its full value. These fallen heroes deserve our undying gratitude and our commitment to continually build a nation worthy of their sacrifice. Too often, though, we forget to honor what those who survived their service, some wounded, some healthy, also give up. Because while thankfully most service members do come through their tours without serious injuries, there are other sacrifices each and every one of them makes. Largely, military service is a young person's endeavor. The average age of enlistment is younger than 21, and more than half of enlisted service members are younger than 25. I mean, these are the years that the rest of us spend preparing to build our lives, often starting careers, living a mostly carefree life without the responsibilities that accumulate as we age. Even when veterans don't sacrifice their lives, they certainly sacrifice their youth. It's something they can never get back and for which we can never repay them. Many others sacrifice their family and force their family to sacrifice for them. Another 35% of active duty enlisted service members are between 25 and 35 years old. If they've started a family, they will most certainly spend long stretches of time separated from their loved ones. Navy sailors deploy sometimes for six months at a time with very limited ability to communicate home. Other branches have equal deployments. They miss first steps, first days of school, birthdays and holidays and wedding anniversaries. And when I think of the few milestones I've had to miss because I was shooting something away from home, it kills me. And for these people who can't fly back on breaks to see their family and who have to do this year after year after year, the magnitude of what they give to our nation is clear. And of course, there are those who are wounded physically or psychologically by their service. Those who come home, but who still left something of themselves on our battlefields. I've visited them in VA hospitals, and I know that no matter how much care and support we give them, it's never gonna be enough. They carry their service with them for the rest of their lives, a shadow enlistment that they can never quite escape. So these are just a few of the many seen and unseen sacrifices our veterans make for our nation. It is so important that every veteran knows that we see what it costs them to keep us safe. It is so important that every veteran knows that we care about them. Veterans, I salute you. I see you. I support you, I hear you, and thank you. Thank you for all you've given in the service of our country. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry.